We are about to launch into a new sermon series today. Before we do that, I just want to uh, invite you as you leave today to, uh, to grab a bookmark. The ushers will be by the back doors as you leave after Holy Communion today. You'll take communion and then uh, be free after, after the rails to, uh, to head out. Um, and as you go, I want to invite you to, to grab this. It's, it just says scripture in the pocket. It's a bookmark that uh, I guess you could put it in your pocket, but it's really made to slide into your Bible. And, uh, and you'll see on here the scriptures that we talked about last month, some other scriptures for just times in our life when we're challenged, some scriptures to go to for, for a meaningful word in those times of our lives. As, uh, as we start this new worship series, I, I want to invite us into a conversation. And um, really, I, I want to I invite you to be a part of a conversation all month long. And I know that's kind of strange in the format of, of preaching that we have in our church, right? The context doesn't make a conversation here very, very natural. Um, it, you know, it, it's not easy. We, we can't really just get all 200 of us around a table and, uh, you know, and enjoy a meal and, and have a conversation. Although if, if anyone would like to invite 200 people over to their house to sit around their dining table... Um, I am happy to bring the dessert. We'll have ice cream dessert. It'll be a, be a great guy. So just let, just let me know. Instead of that table conversation, though, I, what, what I hope is that from up here this, this month, I'm going to share some thoughts and some biblical foundations and some conversations that I have been a part of over the last several years. And then I want to invite you to respond. I want to invite you to, to email me as, as things percolate and you, you have more thoughts. I want you to, to send questions my way. I want you to feel free after worship to, to stop me as, uh, as you leave to, to continue the dialogue. And I, I hope, I sincerely hope, that, uh, that what God shares through me this month will, will give us some things to reflect on and that they may challenge us and it may even rile us up a bit and I hope that we'll find this place where we can talk and we can wrestle together and we can we can dialogue with each other in the way that Jesus did with his followers encouraging conversations conversations centered in Christ's love so this sermon series is called Listening to the Skeptic, and I think that'll make a little more sense in a, in a few more minutes. But, um, but let me share now one question that is at the heart of this series and will be for the whole month, and that question is, who are we? Who are we as the church, as Clay Church, as followers of Jesus? One question that'll drive our conversation the entire month, who are we? we. And so I, I'm going to invite us, let's just get this, this conversation started. In a moment, I want to invite you to, to turn to somebody close to you, and I want you to just share, you know, what just pops into your mind when you hear that question, who are we as the church? Who are we as Clay Church? Just, I want you to share in just a moment what pops into your mind. And now, if you're a visitor today, and, uh, and you're thinking, wait, I, I, I'm, here for the, I'm here for the first time today, how am I supposed to answer this question? Uh, you might just share, you know, like, like, you know something. What, what brought you here today? You might like, I know it's a church with a sign, uh, for instance, right? So, uh, uh, so what, what brought you here today? If you've been here two or three times, but you, you haven't really gotten involved in the community, what, what, what is your impression of, of who we are as a church? Or what do you hope 
What do you hope to find in that answer to who we are as a church? And, uh, and one more thing I feel obligated to say this as an introvert myself. If you are an introvert and you're sitting there and you're like, I really, I don't want to have a conversation with somebody else right by me this morning. I, I don't do that early in the morning. Um, that's okay. Uh, have a conversation with God and, uh, and answer that question. If you're online, you can do that or you can also uh, uh, have a conversation in the comments on, uh, on Facebook this morning. So let's start that conversation. Turn to somebody close to you and, and just answer, who are we? As the church is Clay Church, who are we? Go for it. All right, the extroverts are like, we've got more to say. We'd like to keep talking. The introverts are like, okay, let's keep moving. Would, uh, would you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts to your word this day. Speak to us. Move us. And Lord, where necessary, remind us of who you call us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Some of you know that, uh, that I often have slides up during the, during the message, and I, just, I find it a, a wonderful way to sort of engage our visual learning, and sometimes I'll put up, you know, Words for emphasis, biblical passages for emphasis. Sometimes we'll, uh, we'll put up their pictures to just sort of help us think from with the right side of our brain during a message. But today I just, I just want to imagine, no slides today, I, I just want us to just imagine we're at that table. And imagine there's a meal laid out in front of us and a, and a drink in our hand and we're at that point where we've kind of all warmed up and we're ready for this conversation. And if it helps, I just want you to know my table has tacos on it because... Tacos are great conversation food, um, and uh, a bottle of Coke is in my hand because uh, if you share a Coke, you share a smile. Uh, Coca-Cola, if you're watching, you can send the payment for that advertisement to claychurch.com. Uh, no, but I, I, let's, just, let's just have a conversation. And uh, I just kind of want to start by sharing what's on my heart. And what's been on my heart lately. And I, I'll tell you, I spend more time, have spent more time in the last, last several months thinking about the church, what it means to be the church, thinking about you, the, the church, thinking about us, thinking about the church and the world and, and just where we are right now. Right. I mean, the reality is you can look around, even Clay Church, on a Sunday morning and realize that the church is changing. 
And, and we can point to attendance um, because of COVID as part of that, but it's, it's much more than that. Church attendance, church belonging was declining well before COVID. When people ask, I often say, I think COVID actually just sort of pressed on the accelerator of some of the trends that were already happening in the church. There was a Pew Research uh, study that came out last year, and, uh, and just so I get the numbers right, that, that Pew Research poll said that uh, um, the decline in those who consider themselves Christian in the United States dropped 12% from 2009 to 2019, 12%, 10 years. A Gallup poll that came out a couple months ago said that for the first time in U.S. history, think about that for a moment, for the first time in United States history, fewer than 50% of people in the United States say they belong to a worshiping community. That's down from 70% just 20 years ago. Right? And as I said, we, we can look around and know that. We're like many churches. Um, most churches right now, they, they say, are averaging um, 40 to 50% of the attendance that they had pre-COVID. That's reflected in attendance. It's, it's reflected in giving. And the reality, when you, when you really dig into the studies and, and look at what's happening too, you'll see there, like people will point out, well, there's some churches that are growing, and that is not untrue. There are some churches that are growing. But when you look at the statistics and the numbers, you realize that those churches are primarily growing with movement within the Christian community. Uh, they count baptisms, but it's because they, unlike like once somebody is baptized, we believe they're baptized for life, so we have new members. But in, in churches that count baptisms, you can be rebaptized, and so they're counting this growth, and, and it's really rebaptisms of people who are coming from, from other churches. When people are asked, like, why, why aren't you a part of a, a faith community? Why aren't you part of a church anymore? The, the words that come up over and over again, and there are multiple research studies that are showing this now, the words that come up are hypocritical judgmental, political, uncaring. Values that they don't want to have anything to do with. Anybody depressed yet? <laughs> right? But, but here's the thing, and I want you to hear me say this. If you're depressed right now, uh, I want you to hear this. I think we need to know the reality to, to kind of know the, the facts of what the church looks like in the world today. But I don't share this. Hear me say this really clearly. I don't say these for us to be depressed. I actually, I actually say them for the opposite reason. I think we use these as motivation to say, do you know what? The world right now needs Jesus. And because Jesus is embodied in the church, the world right now needs the church more than ever. And and I believe, I share this this morning, I believe that the world needs the church more than ever. And the world needs churches like Clay Church to live out loud the gospel as we know it. That's what the world needs, not what the church has become in the media, not what the church has, has become in sort of the general understanding, but what the church is, what Jesus calls us to be. So I don't share these words to make anybody depressed, I share them 
I hope maybe for the Holy Spirit to light a fire in us. And that starts with answering this, this question of, right, I think the first step is, is knowing who we are. That's why this month we're going to really look at that question, who are we? Because I think once we know who we are, then we can live into it. And as we're living into it, we'll live it out loud into the, into the world. So whenever I research a sermon series, I'll often put the topic into Google um, because, really for two reasons. One, I want to know if you Google it, what you are going to see. Like I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, if you Google um, like Adam and Eve and garden, you've got to be careful. Um, I want to know what you see if, uh, if I'm talking about something and you Google it. But the other reason is because sometimes you'll find, I find nuggets of wisdom in, in commentaries or other sermons or things that other people have, have said and, and can pull them into, into a message series. So I, I Googled listening to the skeptic. And, uh, and I got to tell you, there were a couple good things there, but for the most part, what I found there was, I'm not sure quite the right word, a disappointing maybe or, or frustrating. Like what I found there were, lots of messages from churches and sermons that treated the skeptic like they were less than or, or the enemy or, or that our, our job was, was uh, to convince them that they, everything they knew was wrong and everything that we knew was, was right. It was kind of heartbreaking to see how the church was postured in those conversations toward, toward those who are those who are skeptical. One said this. One said that uh, it had like points on how to engage skeptics. And I'm like, oh, this will be good. You know, like how do we engage in these conversations with skeptics? And the first thing it said was don't engage in the folly of fools. I'm like, oh, so we're going to start with name calling. I mean, I, that's, that's like Jesus, right? As I read through these, I like I said, it was just kind of heartbreaking, and, and I thought, maybe we need to start this conversation with thinking about how we approach listening to the skeptic, right? Because, because these are the people in our world that are searching for something. These are those people who've, who've maybe been burned by the church in the past or haven't felt the kind of love that, that Jesus offers. These are the, the, the people that are asking genuine questions, and until we listen, we can't answer. So this, this is my invitation this month. My invitation this month is, is for us to listen to the voice, voices of, of skeptics. To really listen, not listen with a, with first because we, we want to answer them, but just to listen to what they're saying. And as we listen, to think about what they're saying as a mirror for us, right? How many of you, you know, look in the mirror in the morning and, and see that you're all put together? I'm the only one? Oh, come on, hey, mirror. Okay. Right, I want to invite us to think about these conversations with the, with, with the skeptic as a mirror, and as we look into it, what do we see? As we hear what they have to say about how they see the church, that, whether we like it or not, that's the, that's the front of the church that, that they see. So let's, 
Let's use these conversations as a, as a mirror. As a, uh, as a pastor, I'm, I'm blessed to have conversations in all kinds of, of settings with people. And, and one, of the, one of the things that's really like the most fun is, uh, uh, is when you're on, like, say, an airplane and you sit down and, you know, you start a conversation with the person next to you and then they ask what you do and you say, you're a pastor. And their whole demeanor changes in that very moment. And what's interesting, it doesn't matter whether they are um, part of a faith community or, or fo Jesus followers or not. Like the very fact that they're sitting next to their, like they, they change their posture. They start to watch their language, which they weren't watching before you announced that you were a pastor to them. Right? I mean, uh, there's this total change in them. Um, and, uh, and it's just because, like, there's just this kind of sense of respect. And, they, and they, it's like they change who they are. And I will always then start to ask questions and, and try to be really affirming because I, I want them to know, look, just be honest. I, I don't know why me being a pastor had to change anything, but, but let's have a real conversation. And, and uh, you know, and they'll, they'll try, sometimes they'll try to sound um, like they, they have a relationship or the, like, it's just like, just be honest. And when you get past that kind of, that kind of surface, I need to be somebody in front of a pastor that I'm not otherwise, when you get past that. It's really a gift when, when they just open up and, and share their story. I met a guy. Um, it's been, it was before I came to Clay Church, a couple of years. I was on a flight and uh, uh, sat down by him. He was a philosophy professor in the Midwest, a small liberal arts college. Um, and, uh, and we sat down. We had kind of a conversation about where we were from, some of those kinds of things. And I, he asked what I did, and I said, a pastor. And, uh, and I asked him what he did, and he said he, he taught philosophy. And I, I think... I think my next question was like, do you have a do you have a faith community, or how does you know how does how does spiritual life fit into your philosophy? And and then he told me the story. Uh, it had been a couple of years before that. He had a student in his class that uh, that had written a paper. Um, it was a, an assignment around like sort of existential uh, life. You know those things you write in philosophy that most of us wanted to forget after we philosophy class. And uh, so he wrote this paper and. Uh, um, and he got a D on it. He graded it for this student. The student got a D. And, uh, and the next thing that he knew, um, he was being called into the, uh, the dean's office because there was a formal complaint about the grade on the paper. And he said he was kind of surprised because the student had turned in a first draft and he had quoted the Bible. He, he had told his students that they were welcome to, um, to quote any any spiritual source. They just needed to document it, and they needed to fill out their, their arguments for whatever they were arguing. Well, this student had quoted the Bible and had, had quoted Jesus, had used the words Jesus says several times in the paper, and never documented any of it. <clears throat> and so he said when he saw it, he, he went through it on the rough draft, and he, and he wrote, you know, if you're going to use this, you need to document this. If you need to do this, you need to document this. And then he said there were a couple of things <clears throat> where he had Jesus says, and it wasn't anything that Jesus ever said. It wasn't in the Bible. And so, uh, so he marked those, and then he handed it back to the student and, and assumed the student would, you know, make some improvements and turn it back in. Well, the student changed a few things in the paper, but he didn't add any documentation to sources, and he didn't change the quotes of Jesus that weren't Jesus quotes. And so he got a D on the paper. But that wasn't the end of the story. The student then took a complaint to the dean and said that, uh, that it was motivated by um, by religious hatred. Um, and the, this 
relatively young professor said the next thing that he knew, it was just this storm. Lawyers were on campus and, uh, and, and the churches, the family had told their church and other churches in the community and the churches were doing demonstrations at, uh, at uh, school, or the board meetings of the, of the college. He said it was just, it was a mess. And he said that, you know, the irony of it, and we had talked about this before we ever got to that subject. He said, you know, I, I'm a, I was raised Catholic. He said, when I, when I got to high school and college, I had all these questions and, and all these kind of lingering doubts, and I, and I wanted to really dig in. And my, my small-town Catholic church community, like, there wasn't room for that. There wasn't room for me to have doubts. There wasn't room for me to have questions. And so I just sort of drifted away from, from the Catholic Church. And he said, I, I, don't, I don't know that, I don't, I don't not believe in Jesus. I don't know how I believe in Jesus right now in my life. I certainly don't have anything against the word and faith. He's like, if, if our plane crashed, um, my mom and dad would have a Catholic mass and that is fine with me. And I said, that is not funny. But he said what, what happened in and through this experience, so it was just, it was heartbreaking, and, and he was so, so thankful. He said he felt so blessed. He had, a, he had a dean and a president of the university that heard the story and, and stood by him. Um, that, the, uh, that the media stories for a while ran and said, you know, Professor Mark's downgrade because of use of the Bible. Um, and it was... It was awful for a while. He said he thinks it affected his next class. There were fewer students than he was used to in this philosophy class the next semester. But he said then he, he actually then had a, had a semester sabbatical. And when he came back, things, it, it had died down and, and kind of returned to normal for him. But he said what, what struck him in the experience was that nobody, nobody from the church, nobody ever listened to his side of the story. Nobody, nobody ever even sat down with him and said, you know, let's talk about what happened. Like, doesn't, isn't that what the Bible says to do? And then he said, uh, he said two things. As I'm telling him just like how sorry I am he's had this experience. He said two things that have really stuck with me. One, he said, you know, I know that, I know that this isn't who, the, who the, every congregation is. He's like, I, I have been so hurt in and through this that I can't not, sort of question the entire institution of the church because of the experience that I've had. And then, and then he repeated an argument that I have heard before. He said, the church says that they serve the world, but it feels like they're just looking out for themselves. And as we kept talking, he said, it just feels like a group of hypocrites. And I just sat there and thought, that's, that's not who we are. I wanted to convince him in that moment. Like, I wanted to, I wanted to somehow be like, no, that's not who we are. And, and here, I'm going to convince you that that's not who we are. But I realized that, like, trying to explain away his hurt or 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 make him feel better in the moment wasn't the answer, that, that I just needed to listen. Maybe this was a moment that, that God would use for, for me to think about the church as I was a leader within it.
it's that word, hypocrites, it hurts. And I don't like the word, but, but I've heard it. I've heard it repeated in these last couple of years again and again. I've heard young people, I was part of a, really sort of on the periphery of a conversation of, of a college chaplain with students. And they, uh, they said multiple times in, the, in this thread of conversation that the church says they care about people and then they're on the front lines of, of, uh, of fighting mask mandates which are just put in place to, to care for people. Like, how does, how does that work? Later in that conversation, there were comments about how in their eyes, and I'm not saying right or wrong, I'm not saying their view is, is a correct view, but how, how it feels like church people are at, at the front of, of political movements that are fighting against living wages for people. They said it feels like, it feels like the churches, church people are saying they'll take care of the poor, but, but they're not giving to churches in a way that empowers churches to to care for the poor. Again, right or, or wrong, this is the reflection in the mirror. Are we hypocrites? Sometimes maybe yes, but, but I think there's something more important to say, which is, no, this is, this is not who we are. But if we're going to say no, we need, to, we need to ask the question, who are we? If we're not going to be hypocrites, who are we as the church in the world today? Paul writes to the church in Rome, Right? And, and the church in Rome seems to have been struggling with its identity. It was, it was wrestling. We know this in large part because of Paul's letter. That there were these questions. There were Jewish believers and Gentile believers and a number of house churches. And we can tell from the tone of Paul's letter that they were, they were wrestling with, with who they are and what it meant to be followers of Jesus. And they... They seemed to have had their own opinions about what that meant. And there were some who, who seemed to, were probably Jewish believers who said that you have to follow the law. You have to start by following the law, and then you can be a follower of Jesus. You need to, to live like we do, and then you can be a follower of Jesus. And then there were Gentiles who said, we just need to throw the law out. Your law is, is meaningless now. We don't need the law anymore. You don't need the law anymore. And you need to live the way we do to be a follower of Jesus. And so Paul, he writes and he tells them, I want to visit. And he reminds them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, in chapter 3, he begins to address this, this struggle of identity for the church. And this is what he says to them. He says, starting in verse 9, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the ch charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Have, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then he goes on, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous by God, in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. Paul and Romans can be hard to understand, but, but what Paul does here is actually brilliant, right? What he does is he starts with the gospel, and then he begins to lay out both the arguments of the Gentiles and the arguments of the Jews. And then he grounds himself in the Old Testament. He grounds himself in all these different places in the Old Testament, this whole list. No one is righteous. There's deceit going on. Nobody is, is living this to the fullest. All of those are quotes from different places in the Old Testament. And essentially, at the heart of this, he's saying, look, you're both wrong. You both think that your way is the right way. But here's the problem. You're talking about it as your way, not God's way. So you're, you're both wrong. All of you fall short. The truth is, all of you are a mess in one way or another. And when you hold yourself up as self-righteous, you're damaging the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of you are a mess, Paul is saying. Start there. Start with your need for God because of the messiness of your lives. Turn to somebody close to you right now and say, say I'm a mess sometimes. Just turn to somebody close to you and say, I'm a mess sometimes. Feels kind of good, to, right? To just own it. Now uh, turn back to the person who just said that and say, me too. We are all a mess sometimes. That's what, what Paul wants the, the church to know. That, that as they're wrestling with their identity, Paul says, okay, start here. You're, you're all sinful. You're all a mess sometimes. Start with, with this that, that is true of all of you. And then Paul keeps going because the, it doesn't end there, right? He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, meaning a way to make all one with God, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And then he says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? 
The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. Paul uses a lot of run-on sentences. And I get that sometimes you read Romans and you think, oh my gosh, I don't know how to begin to make heads or tails of this. But there's beautiful theology in the book of Romans. And maybe none so more than, than this point. Paul says, we can't do anything to earn God's love. You are both trying to argue with each other about ways to earn God's love, ways to be right with God. And that, that rightness with God comes through Jesus. That's what makes us the community we are. We all know that we're a mess, and we all know that because of the messes of our lives, we need Jesus. This is who we are, and we receive the saving grace as a gift. When we start to think we're right and everyone else is wrong, if we start to think that our messes are small and everybody else's messes are bigger than ours, if we come to believe that somehow we're better because we sit here and others are worse because they don't, somehow we've earned something that they haven't, we cross the line into hypocrisy. And Paul calls us back. We come to worship, right? We come to this gathering right here together because we know we're a mess. Because we know we need to center our, our lives in Jesus again and again and again. We, we study the Bible together. We, we worship together. We, we fellowship together because we know that we're stronger together because we need Jesus and we receive Jesus through the love of each other. We come together because it's by coming together that we can center our lives again and again in Jesus because it's so easy, right? The narrow way is, is hard. The, the wide way is easy. It's so easy to keep leaving the narrow way. And so we gather again and again because we recognize we're a mess and we recognize that the value that holds us together is centering our lives in Jesus Christ. So who are we? We're a mess. But we're not just a mess. We're a mess. And we're people who realize that Jesus wants to enter into those very messy places in our lives. We're people who believe that Jesus cleans up the mess of our lives. We're people who believes that Jesus' love transforms us. We're people who center our lives in Jesus Christ. Period. So we hold on to that this week. As you know, at, at Clay Church, we, we have a faith fit challenge every week. And sometimes we talk about this more than others. But I want to invite you to take the faith fit challenge with you this week. I think you'll find it in the Life Guide. You can certainly find it in the online circle curriculum this week. Here's what I want to invite you to do. Every morning when you get out of bed, I want you to just take three deep breaths. You can take more than that if you want to, but take three deep breaths. And as you breathe in, think to yourself, Jesus Christ, my Savior. And then as you breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a simple breath prayer. As you breathe in, Jesus Christ, my Savior. 
as you breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as you do, just own that prayer. Center your life in that prayer and carry that prayer with you throughout the day, knowing, knowing that Christ is present. His love surrounds you. So let's practice that right now. Let me invite you just to take a posture of prayer, whatever that looks like to you. And as you breathe in, Jesus Christ, my Savior, and out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in, Jesus Christ, my Savior, and out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And in, Jesus Christ, my Savior, and out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Paul's message in the book of Romans, remember I said it started with the gospel, and then it encourages people to stay centered in that gospel. I just, I want to close by letting you hear how it ends. This is Romans 15. So this whole argument, there's beautiful stuff, but it really all builds to these verses, 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Amen.